Our New Testament lesson this morning is found in Revelation chapter 3, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 2. We're reading verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, Father, we do ask that you would speak. Give us ears to hear. Incline us to listen to your voice and to respond to all that the Spirit says to, your, to the churches. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a kid, I was convinced that my mother was omniscient. She knew most everything that I was into without me really saying too much. Whether it was good that I had done or bad that I had done, she seemed to be keenly aware of what little Charles Colson had done. One afternoon after school, we grew up in a neighborhood where there were many non-Christian families, and so most of my friends growing up didn't share my family's faith. But I had many good friends, and I went down to one of them's homes, and there was an unusual crowd gathered there. And so when I arrived, I knew something was probably off. And they were watching a movie that we shouldn't have been watching. And I knew it was wrong, and I did leave, but I hung out for a little while. I was proud of myself for leaving. I went home to play basketball by myself. I had paid a price. I got home, and my mom asked me, she said, well, where were you? I said, well, I was down at Rob's house. She said, well, what were you doing? And I knew it. I was like, she knows. <laughs> How does she know? I was like, well, they were watching this movie. And so I got the disapproving look, and I said, but mom, I left. And I was like, How does she know? She could just see through things. She knew the guilty looks. She knew what to watch for on the block. And when it comes to this passage in Revelation 2 with Jesus, 
we meet one with an even greater clarity of sight. We are told that his eyes are like a flame of fire, that he is the one who searches the mind and the heart, that he sees and he cuts through things, that the, the protests and the lives of men don't hold up in front of him because he knows what things are for what they are. He sees everything. Of course, this can, can seem extremely intimidating. It can be scary to think that Jesus knows that he knows everything about you, he knows everything about me, he knows everything about our church and the churches in the world. He knows it with great clarity and awareness. But here's the thing. In his knowledge, Jesus doesn't use his sight as a weapon against you. He doesn't turn to somehow use that against you to bully you. He's not mean and angry with it, but his goal, the goal of his knowledge is to prepare his church for her witness in the world. Remember the context of these visions that we have from John, spoken to him by Jesus, these letters, that Jesus is walking amongst the seven lampstands representing the seven churches in the region that were addressed. And it was the role of the priest to tend to and care for the lampstands in the temple. And in the vision at the end of chapter 1, this is the picture we have of Jesus tending to and caring for the lampstand, making sure it was burning bright, cutting the wick, filling it with oil, and then removing it if it wasn't functioning. But this is Jesus' goal with his knowledge, is he knows us. And he knows us in order that we would be his servants. And he reveals that he knows what we're into. He knows who we are. He knows what we're doing. And he makes that revelation known in order to change us, that we be his church in the world and that he build up our witness in the world. It is interesting to note that this letter is written to the smallest of any of the cities or towns that were addressed by Jesus. It was not necessarily a significant place, and they also get the most words. This is the longest letter that Jesus speaks in the vision. And so this insignificant place that's not very important in the eyes of the world gets the most attention because Jesus cares for this church and where it is and its problems that it faces and he wants them to repent that their lampstand would burn bright, that his knowledge of them would be used for their good and blessing, that it wouldn't turn into a word of judgment. And so Jesus is looking at this church in history, and Jesus continues to survey the churches of our world today. And the question is, is that when Jesus looks at the church, what exactly does he see? And there's four things that we find in the passage that Jesus sees when he looks at the church. First, he sees our works. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. It can be customary sometimes when we hear the word works to have a negative connotation on it. In the Bible, sometimes, and in theology, works can be negative things. But 
in the book of Revelation, when Jesus uses this term works, he has something broader than just meritorious things we do to try to earn God's favor in mind, okay? That's not what Jesus means. When he says, I know your works, he then goes on to explain what he means by works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And so when Jesus speaks of works here, He's not saying things that you do in order to get into heaven, but he is speaking about their faith in him, their faithfulness to him, their loving service of the fellow members in the community, of their endurance and hanging in there with Jesus through difficulty. He's saying, I know of your lives and of your commitment to me. This is what Jesus means when he says, I know your works. He sees them. He values them. It's a strong commendation of this church when he says that he knows of all their love, of their faith, of their service, and their patient endurance. He even comments that now, in the present, your works are ever increasing as to what they were at the beginning. And so this church had a great deal to commend, uh, that Jesus commended it for. And friends, this gives the Christian, a peculiar freedom when we know that Jesus knows our works. Jesus knows what we have done on his behalf. Jesus knows our faith and our trust in him. Jesus knows the long hours that you may spend in serving someone that no one else knows or accounts for. It is a peculiar freedom that we gain because so often Our works in this life, when we are obeying Christ, seem irrelevant. They seem to go unnoticed, that they don't receive any type of accolade, that putting yourself last rather than first doesn't seem to get any applause in the world, and that Jesus' way of doing things is quite backwards. But the reason that the Christian can submit themselves to the way of Jesus and bearing a cross in this world is because Jesus says, I know. I know your works. I know your faithfulness. I know your love. I know your trust in me. That we can fully give ourselves to that because Jesus knows it all. And that what he promises is a divine approval at the end of all things that will vindicate every piece of it. And then he does commend this church because their latter works exceed the first. We saw just the opposite in Ephesus, that they had grown cold. Well, the the church in Thyatira seems to be warming up, that they were growing and their obedience was becoming deeper. And this is an important challenge for us to hear, because when Jesus looks at the church, he doesn't simply look at us based on our past record on works that we did 25 years ago, of great decisions we've made, of sacrifices that we've made, of gifts that we've given. Jesus doesn't just record those. He's looking at the church today. And it's important that we all always be asking the question of what does it look like for me to render my life to Jesus today as his servant? As you know, we had the funeral for Dottie Brooks this week. It was a tremendous Tuesday, and thank you for all who joined us. It was an awesome event to honor this godly woman. 
And one of the things that was so great about Miss Dottie and why we will miss her so much in this congregation is because of her works. They were simple. Dottie was an elderly lady. She didn't find that she was able to get out much and do that much, but you know what? She still found ways to serve. Dottie gave herself to two things in particular that are great examples for us. Dottie called the nursery workers every Saturday. Many of you probably have received those calls where she would be reminding us of our duties in the nursery on the Saturday prior to Sunday. And it was one way that Dottie found herself able to participate in our congregation's life and to serve in her advanced years. It was wonderful to watch her work that out. She would tell me, Chuck, I can't do everything anymore. I can't do what I used to do, but this is what I can do. That's great. And the other thing that Dottie gave herself to was she found that she had a new capacity to pray. Her children found amongst all of her things, baggies. Dottie was very organized. She kept tons of things in baggies, little Ziploc baggies, medium-sized baggies, large baggies, and then extra large Ziploc baggies. They were just loaded in her apartment. But in those baggies, Dottie kept all kinds of stuff, but she had pictures of people, and she had dates written down on birthday, and it's what she used to go through and pray for people. That's what she saw she was able to give herself to. And friends, it's important for us in every season of life, wherever we may be, whether young or old, that we ask, what can I render to God that my works would be increasing, that my faith, my love, my faithfulness, my perseverance, my endurance would ever be increasing? Our Lord Jesus sees our works and he commends them. And he wants those things ever to be growing in us. And that's what Jesus sees when he looks at the church. Second thing that he sees is that he sees our compromises. It's remarkable that Jesus can commend the, the church in Thyatira in one verse. And then in verse 20, he says, But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so Jesus has strong words of commendation for the church, and then he also has critique. He has concern. And you note that the critique and concern is not at first, with the people who are practicing the sexual immorality and idolatry, that his critique begins with those who are tolerating it. That the church body had a large community who was faithful to Jesus and holding fast to him, and yet they were tolerating those who had accepted practices that were not in keeping with their Christian profession of faith. And Jesus is expecting the community to police its own boundaries. That the community is to have a discipline and an integrity to it. That there is to be a guardianship and an overwatch and an oversight that is taking place. In other words, is it, it isn't enough for us to simply tend to our own life and beliefs. 
that we also have to be concerned for the spiritual health and well-being of all other people who are joined into this community. And if a brother or sister is deeply compromised, where they are turning away from the faith, we can't just keep it to ourselves. As a young pastor, I was working with a group of young adults in Memphis, Tennessee, and two of the young ladies came to me on one afternoon to talk about some concerns they had with our church. And they shared with me, they said, you know, there's just a lack of community here. There's not a real authentic community. And so I started asking some questions just to kind of further understand and draw them out. And it turned out that there was a real kind of lack of self-disclosure in their small group Bible study that they were concerned about that was breaking down their sense of community. And there was one person in particular in the group who had a tendency towards self-righteousness and disapproval of when you shared a weakness. She would just hammer you. And she always came across as having it together and being right. And it crushed everyone else in the group. And so the girls were coming to me, and they were really complaining about that. Because that was what was squashing their sense of community. And they had universalized it into something else. And so the conversation turned, and I asked them, well, have you spoken with this person about that? Well, oh, no. No, we're, we don't want to get into her business like that. You know, that's, that's not really our responsibility. Um, that, that may be yours, but, you know, we're, we're not going to take that up. And friends, to the degree that we limit our responsibility to one another will be the, the limits that we place on our community life. That if we're not willing to go to one another, when someone is in sin and when they're erring, then we're not taking Jesus seriously. And this means that we have to be very self-aware, that we want to take the log out of our own eye, Jesus says, before we go point out the speck that is in someone else's. And so it demands a a work inside of our own hearts that we become extremely self-aware spiritually, and it requires hard work on our side before ever speaking to someone else about their particular sins. But friends, it's clear that Jesus expects the community to protect its own boundaries, to have an oversight, and to watch over them. Matthew 18 provides the context for us in thinking about how a community is to do this. That first we go to a brother or sister in private. When we have an offense and we share that with them in private, that it's gentle and we're seeking restoration and wholeness of life. And then if there is a hardness, then we have someone else brought in who shares that concern. And two people then go. And then if there still is hardness, then it goes to the broader body. But friends, we have a very reasonable way for handling grievances and difficulty and sin inside the Christian community. And it's very different from the way that our world works. That our goal is not to out you in the headlines and to shame you and to put you down. But our goal is restoration. It's integrity of belief and life. An integration of our faith in the way that we live Because Jesus, he does see our compromises. And he doesn't approve of our toleration of them. 
Third thing that Jesus sees is that Jesus sees our motives. Back in verse 20, Jesus does critique the church for tolerating the woman Jezebel. This is not referring to a specific woman named Jezebel. This is an Old Testament figure who is symbolic. But there obviously is someone teaching, male or female, we are not sure, but they are leading people in the church away from the truth. And we have been putting together what these heresies looked like in the early first century. And the characteristics of it, that they were practicing sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. And those are the key background elements of what was happening inside the church. And so from what we know from archaeology and history and study is that the city of Thyatira was a bustling trade town. It did not have a large population, but there were trade guilds. If you remember in Acts uh, chapter 16, there's a woman named Lydia, and she is a wealthy woman, and she dealt in purple dyes. And where was she from? Thyatira. And so this is what the city was, is it was a trade center sitting at a crossroads. In order to get to some of the other major towns, you had to come through this little place. But its life was dominated by the trade guilds. And what was required of someone to participate in the, guild, in the guilds, it was something like a union, okay, a work union. You had to participate in the, uh, in the festivals that were associated with the God of that particular guild. And that would expose you to eating meat sacrificed to idols and also to other sexually immoral practices that would take place. This was simply a part of pagan first century religion. And so this false teacher seems to be indicating that you can participate in that union trade guild life and not be compromised as a Christian. That you can do all those things, you can eat food sacrificed to idols, you can participate in the sexual immorality that takes place as a Christian. It later is called the deep things of Satan, that perhaps the teacher was saying that you can get involved in all this deep stuff of Satan and it doesn't touch you because you belong to Christ. We don't quite know but it was some kind of perversion of the truth. But here's the thing about what is happening in Thyatira is the motives behind this compromise are fairly easy to read and see. Because not to participate in the festivals would put you out of the trade union. It would put you out of the economic life Suddenly, you would find your business shriveling. The only thing that you knew how to do to earn a living would be taken away. Your family would go hungry. You would lose your friends. You would lose your sense of community. You would be cut off. And so when you look at the motives, we can actually become deeply compassionate, and we can understand there's a sensitivity to the pressure that some of our brothers and sisters were under but they were compromised. The church was to speak to them about it because our Lord Jesus sees the motives behind what we're doing. 
And so often our motives are driven by our personal comfort and our personal well-being. And that's what was happening here in Thyatira. Last year, Marvin Olasky, he's the editor of World Magazine, he wrote a piece called Blindsided. It's a really excellent article. And it is on a large evangelical church in San Francisco. The church was actually planted by our own denomination back in the late 1990s. It had since left our denomination. But then everyone was surprised last spring when the church came out in favor of same-sex unions. And Olasky, a friend of the pastor of the church, writes an article after having interviewed the pastor titled, Blindsided. Didn't see this coming. What had happened? That this church that had been committed to historic Christian Orthodox teachings had suddenly removed the moorings and was taking up a different stance on many things that are essential to the core of the Christian faith. Because let's be clear, sexual immorality in all of its versions and varieties is not new to the church. It was just as prevalent in the first century as it is in the 21st century. And that the church has had a consistent sexual ethic. And that has been held and has been held fast and it's clear to anyone who knows the history and the teachings of Scripture. And suddenly these things have come up for revision. And Olasky is asking that question in the article. Why? Why, why, why the move and the shift? It was interesting because what was discovered is that one of the pastors had a son who was dealing with same-sex attraction. And then there was also a very wealthy patron of the church who was an activist in the LGBTQ community, and he gave large sums of money. And so what could make me angry also made me understand, while I don't agree with the church's decision or with their standards, suddenly I understand the pressures that they were under, financial and personal pressures, temptations, and they gave in. And friends, that is what we all face as Christians. There are motives behind our decisions that often involve our personal well-being and our personal comfort. Areas that we may have to stand for Jesus where we're not exactly comfortable and it may cost us something dearly. It can cost a lot. And we need to be aware of what it can cost us. Because Jesus sees our motives. And he holds us accountable for those motives. The final thing that Jesus sees when he looks at the church here is that he sees our needs. After having critiqued the church, calling the church to repentance for its misguided motives, Jesus comes back to affirm the church in verses 25 through 29. He says, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus knows that those who endure with him and hold fast to faith in his name will encounter difficulty 
and he knows your needs. Just as he is intimately acquainted with your works, he knows your needs. And Jesus is committed to meeting those needs. And what he provides for us is a robust vision of the future and of the world that is to come, that he will freely grant us to inherit. Notice that this is the language of Psalm 2 that we read just a moment ago. And Psalm 2 speaks of the royal son who would be given the inheritance of the nations and that his kingdom would stretch from shore to shore, that he would rule over the world and that you must kiss the son, bow the knee to him and find refuge in him to be reconciled to God. This one was the king of the nations, the ruler of the kings of the earth, as Revelation 1 puts it. But then the language of the inheritance and of ruling is then applied to us. And that the morning star is applied to us. And this is the way that it works. That everything that belongs to Jesus, that he is one through death and resurrection and through his perfect righteous record, Jesus then shares with you. He gives it to you. That's preposterous. That he's the ruler of the world, but then Jesus in his new world will grant us to enjoy all of that status and privilege and will be brought into his great inheritance. And that you will rule with him. And you'll enjoy God's world free from the stain of sin. Jesus knows what you need. He gives you every bit of promise in order that you persevere, that you follow after him, no matter what it costs you. Because he sees the motives and he knows the dangers that we're exposed to. He knows the compromises that we can make. He knows our works. He knows us. And he offers us the great gift of the world to come. And he calls us to faithfully follow him. Friends, he sees, he knows, he knows where we are today. And he tends to us as a lampstand in order that we burn brightly. Listen carefully to what he says. Allow him to trim the wick, to fill it with oil, let it burn brightly and be responsive to him. Allow him to search your heart and your works and your motives. Grant him the leeway to do so. And may our lampstand burn. Let's pray. Father, we recognize all of our weakness. And it can be intimidating to think that Jesus is fully acquainted with it as well. We like to hide it from others and we're embarrassed to think that you know it. Move us by your great love and the redemption of the world that is to come, that our works would increase, that our faith and our love and our perseverance would ever be growing. And Lord, help us to be aware of the compromises we can make as a community, of the way that we can tolerate things that shouldn't be tolerated, and also of the motives that go into this that seek our well-being and comfort. God, we ask that you would continue to work in us, that you would persevere with us in our weakness, that you would grant us every grace that we need to be your faithful servants. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.